put in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you for your blessings. Lord, we want to say thank you for allowing us to participate in ministry and, Lord, putting those John and Romans together for churches in the Rhode Island area. Lord, we're thankful for those that were with us this morning and visiting and each one tonight. And, Lord, we're just thankful that you do hear and answer prayers and you are working in our hearts and lives. In your name we pray. Amen. And I've been praying on something to really uh, dig in and get started. I've been looking over notes and praying and I just feel like we need to spend a little bit of time Well, maybe a lot of bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And this is a passage that we go back to often. And I hope over the next several months, I looked in 2008 into 2009, we spent like 54 lessons on, on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not quite sure we're going to do all of that over again, but uh, I do want us to take some time tonight, and uh, I will try to have more regular outlines. But uh, Sermon on the Mount is often been called the greatest sermon ever preached, and I don't know anyone who would argue that point really and truly. Uh, of course, Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher that was ever preached. And if we'll just skip ahead all the way down to chapter 7, the last two verses there, verses 28 and 29, uh, I want us to look at these two verses as we begin our study on the Sermon of the Mount. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished, At his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Um, I don't know how many times in different places as I've uh, studied the Sermon on the Mount in the past that people have tried to say, well, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to the Christians today. It is the kingdom message. And they have tried to make the Sermon on the Mount something else. Honestly, here's what it says. The people who heard Jesus preach this sermon, they were astonished. They were taken back. They they were not used to hearing preaching like Jesus had done here in these three chapters as recorded in the book of Matthew because Jesus taught them as having authority. And, and uh, excuse me, many people have tried to make many things of this, but let me just ask you a question. What does it mean to have authority? How many of you have ever had a situation at work or in school where someone told you something that it was going to be this way and this is the way it is. And they had no right to tell you those things. How many of you have had that happen? If you've worked anywhere, if you've done anything, you have these people running around 
trying to instruct everyone else on how to do their jobs. And normally, as the case is, they're the ones that aren't doing their job. Uh, Isn't that the way it works? I see some heads going up and down. Uh, We have experienced this. And yet, what we have Jesus doing here in these three chapters is explaining to those who would follow him what it means to follow Jesus. If you want a definition of the word Christian, you need to go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is defining what Christianity is all about. And as we look through these chapters here, you will notice that Jesus does not mention the church. And that's why some people take this and say, well, see, this isn't to the church. This is to the kingdom, the talking about the millennial kingdom and all of that. Well, the church didn't get started until Matthew chapter 16. Uh, does that mean that we're not supposed to be blessed as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, that we're not supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? How many of us need, desperately need, God to add the things to our lives that it talks about in those chapters? Uh, I'll tell you what, every one of us need the Sermon on the Mount. And Second Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, how can it be more inspired than to have a direct copy of what Jesus himself spoke? Can we say amen to that? I mean, this is Jesus' sermon. It's profitable for doctrine. That's what we believe. It says that he taught, they were astonished at his doctrine. Do you understand the, the, the context of the scribes and the Pharisees in ver- verses Jesus? You see, when they taught someone the Bible, much the same as many people do today, um, I, I will just give this example. When I was a Bible college student way back in 1980, what was it? 80, actually, it was 1983, I think it was, or 84. I had a class called Ecclesiology. That was the doctrine of the church. And uh, we nicknamed the professor, whose real name was Dr. Pratt. Uh, we just added another little syllable, Prattle. Uh, he spent the first several 55-minute class periods trying to explain to us the meaning of the word ecclesia. A a Greek word that simply means assembly. And he would go on and on talking about, well, the church is a called-out assembly, but uh, the idea is that they assembled together and it went on and on. And I am sitting there going, How in the world are we supposed to... Well, that's what the scribes and Pharisees did. You see, they told the learned 
professor over here or scribe over here believes this. And this scribe over here, he puts it in a little different context. And, and this gentleman here of great learning and many years ago says it. And they would go on and on and on and on and never tell you anything. The word exalacia just simply means assembly. That's all it means. But see, in the context of your Bible, that word has many specifically defined uses that aren't found in the dictionary. Amen? Uh, God uses that word to help us understand. But Jesus, as He taught didn't give everybody's opinion. He made statements of fact. And if you spent the rest of your life doing nothing but trying to live what is in this Sermon on the Mount, I believe you'd hear, well done when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus said. Now, we start out with what has been termed by those who are supposed to know more than the rest of us, the Beatitudes. And someone said, well, these are attitudes you're supposed to be. Well, that's really not what it is. Uh, Jesus is pronouncing blessing. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you could use more blessing in your life? More of God's blessings. I'll tell you what, our, our church is in need of more of God's blessings. We as individuals are in need. I don't know anyone that could not use more of God's blessing in their life. How would you like to be in a state of blessing? Uh, the dictionary defines uh, this thing as a supreme blessedness or happiness... A, a declaration or ascription to a special blessedness, especially those pronounced by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, that's the Oxford English Dictionary talking about this word that was created in the English language. Beatitude is a special pronouncement or a special state of blessedness that Christ claims will be given to those who possess these attributes that are outlined in the next several verses. And so let's just start in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So you get the picture here. As Jesus traveled... Um, he would attract the multitudes, people that needed to be healed. And when we talk about multitudes, just give you a little idea. When he fed the 5,000 in uh, chapter 6 of John and, and the other stories that is related, there were 5,000 men by, besides women and children. So you can figure easily a crowd of 12 possibly even 15,000 without exaggerating. The mega churches have nothing today on what Jesus already was doing. The multitudes, when it talks about multitudes, it talks, it's, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. We're talking about a great percentage 
of the people who lived in the land of Israel came out just to hear Jesus speak. And what he did, he saw the multitude there. And the Bible says that he went up on the side of the mountain and he sat down. And in those days, the teacher sat and the people stood. The disciples came unto him. They gathered there close to him, around him. The crowd was spread out there. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is the introduction, this is the first statement of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is pronouncing a blessing. He said, if you will achieve this status being poor in spirit, you will also be in a state of God's blessing. Now, you have to understand this is contrary to everything most people at that time understood about the Bible. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10, I believe it was, when... The rich young ruler came and kneeled at Jesus' feet and Jesus said, How hardly those that have riches shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were shocked because they understood that riches and possessions were the blessings that God gave. And so if you were wealthy and well-to-do as a Jewish person, they thought, Well, man, you're closer to God than I am. Jesus straightened that thing out. He said, Those that trust in riches... They're they're not going to heaven. It's not what you possess physically. And the disciples were like, who in the world can be saved if it's not the rich people? Weren't they listening to the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus started it by talking about the blessedness that comes by being in the state of being poor in spirit. Now, how many of you know what the word poor means? Say, yeah, I certainly do. It's got my picture right there. Uh, Poor. Well, can I challenge you? Most of us who live in this country could not honestly be classified as anywhere near poor. In Jesus' day, and if you will realize even history, uh, when my father was a child, do you know how many sets of clothes you had if you were middle class? My grandfather was a coal miner, uh, and so they were actually fairly well off. They had a farm that was bought and paid for during the Depression Uh, They didn't have to borrow and buy at the company store. They were doing very well. My father had one set of clothes and one pair of shoes. And that was to last the whole year until the next year. How many of you would like to only have one set of clothes? You'd say, well, I wouldn't have to worry about what to wear, now would I? 
You know, what would you wear while it was getting washed? Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, that was normal in this country. Now, if you don't have a whole closet full of clothes and enough for every day, you're, you, you look and you say, hey, I'm poor, you know, we, we understand in the Bible, it was very much that way. When it talks about people rending their clothes, that was a terrible thing to do. I mean, you only had one set. Unless you were a very well-to-do person. And so you would go around for several days or weeks in, in this rent or ripped condition until you were able to procure another set of clothes. I mean, it was, it was a, a, a thing that we don't understand. And that was not considered poor. I've heard Brother Thompson tell the stories of going to Haiti. Uh, it is arguably the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And he said, I, I was with one of the pastors, and he said, one of my, my uh, he said, uh, the preacher there, national pastor, said, uh, Pastor, one of my ladies is missing. I'm, I'm sure that she's sick or something has happened. And so they went to visit her at her house, and she called out to them before they got to the door and said, Pastor, don't come any closer. Don't come up to my house. And he said, what's wrong? She says, Pastor, I don't have any clothes to come to church in. And Brother Thompson looked at the priest and said, are you serious? He said, yes. And he said, get her some clothes. And he gave money and they, they took care of that thing. And you, if you knew Brother Thompson, I mean, he, he just had a soft heart. Really rough exterior at times, but a very, very soft heart. But see, I tell that story and it just, okay, I know the facts. Yeah, that, that. But does that make sense to anybody here? Not living in the United States. You see, poor means you do not have what you need. You know, if you listen to the radio, they'll tell you that one in five children living in the United States of America is, doesn't have enough food to eat. Now, we have more than five children. That never happened in the Montoro household. But what is the number one health problem in the United States today? How many of you know where I'm going with this? Obesity. So if all these children are starving, why are they fat and overweight? I'll tell you why children go hungry in the United States. It's because those that are supposed to provide for them take the food from their, these children's plates and buy alcohol and drugs and things 
that ought not be bought. That is the only reason someone goes hungry in the United States. We throw away enough food here to feed all of the hungry people in this country. We throw away more food than would be necessary to feed. And I I just want you to understand something. The Bible says that Jesus, as he introduces this sermon, he, he doesn't say, now, listen, I want you all to start thinking in this direction. You know, many times as a, as a pastor, as I prepare my sermon, I say, now, listen, what we got to do is, you know, we sing the songs, and I couldn't think of a better song to sing before the Sermon on the Mount and lead me to Calvary, amen? It gets our minds thinking in the right direction because that's what Jesus did for us. But oftentimes, you've got to talk and tell stories and bring people in to think. Now, Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't leading anybody anywhere. He just starts out by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you want to have God's blessings, if you want to be in a state of special blessedness, you must be poor in spirit. Now, the word poor simply means poor. It means destitute. Not only do you not have what you need, you lack the ability to procure what you need. That's what being poor is. I mean, we think that, wow, I'm, I'm just so hungry, I can't, uh, you know, it's been two hours since I've eaten and I just don't know what to do. And I... And I and I don't have money, and they don't take a credit card, and, and we feel deprived. But that's not poor. Poor is being hungry. Not because you miss something that was normally there. Poor is being hungry because there's nothing to eat, and there's no way to get anything to eat. That's poor. You see, poor in spirit. How, how am I poor in spirit? Well, let's look at a little different definition of the word poor. We often talk about something. How many of you have ever bought something that looked really good and well made at the store? And you brought it home a suitcase or something like that, and you tried it out the first time or second time, and the zipper just ripped right out of it, and it just fell apart. Has anybody had that experience as well as I? And, and what do we say? We say it was poorly made. Uh, there was no quality of manufacture in this. The, the materials that p- were put together uh, to make this item were were not, uh, uh, strong enough to even withstand normal use. We'd say it was poorly made. Uh, how many of you have a poorly made spirit in you? Am I the only one? Hello? Your spirit is so poor, it's dead. Unless you've been born again through the power of God. Amen. 
Could I challenge you that being poor in spirit is the first step to understanding who God is? Could we say amen to that? Being poor in spirit is understanding how great and how good God is compared to what I am. You know, this is the most disgusting part of false religion. This is the part that offends God the most. Is when we as human beings come before God and ask Him to accept something that is totally unacceptable to God. When we offer Him our works and our best efforts, that was the problem with Cain. As Cain brought the work of his own hands, it said the Lord had no respect on the Cain's offering. And what was Cain's answer? I'll kill Abel. Because God respected his offering. Well, why did God respect Abel's offering? Because Abel realized there was nothing that he could do to please God, and so he took that innocent lamb, much exactly the same way as God had done years before, at the edge of the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve had confessed to God that they understood their nakedness and their peril before God, that they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says God made them coats to cover their nakedness. That's the first sacrifice in the Bible. And you see, the Old Testament word is the word atonement. The idea of atonement is the putting off of the reckoning date, is the rolling back of that solution. The word redemption is the buying back. That's the work that Jesus did on the cross, Hebrews chapter 9, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. And, and Abel just copied what God had done with Adam and Eve, and he brought that lamb, and he killed that lamb, and he poured its blood out, and burnt that lamb on the altar, the innocent for the guilty. And God says, I respect that offering. How many of us have tried to do something to please God? How many of you, when you mess up, you lose your temper, you, you just don't, do what you know you ought to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. And we try to make it up to God. Has anybody tried that? You know what? That's human nature. We all try to do that. And that's offensive to God. Being poor in spirit is understanding that my Sin is offensive to a holy God and there's nothing I can do about it. That my person, my being, the Bible tells us that we are the enemies of Christ because we are serving the devil and this world before we are saved. And the sad truth is we as Christians, even after we're saved, go back and repeat many of those same things that we did before we got saved. 
Are we all together yet? Hello? It's not very positive, but if you want blessing, if you want to be in a state of blessedness, you have to start by being poor in spirit. What's it say? God accepts the humble, but he rejects the proud, doesn't he? If I want to be blessed, if I want to have a state of blessedness, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's the next half of that verse? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many of you know that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? It's okay to lift up a hand. It's okay to be public in that testimony. How do you know that? I just feel it inside. Well, I hope that's not you. Because feelings aren't going to get you to heaven. How many of you remember a time and a place where you came before a holy God and said, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. Guess what? That's poor. There's nothing I can do to gain your favor. There's nothing I can do to be pleasing to God. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. And he told, the Bible says that whosoever shall believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How many of you have taken God at his word and he saved you? You see, Jesus is going to let me into heaven, not because of what I've done but because of what Jesus has done. You know what that's called? Unconditional love. Do you know what the world does to try to get unconditional love? They have passed Supreme Court judgments trying to state that it's against the law to say anything nasty about someone who blasphemes God with every part of their life. They call it homosexual marriage. That's not what the Bible calls it. The Bible calls it an abomination. You see, the world screams... And shrieks, and if you dare stand in their way and oppose them, why do you think they're so sensitive about this stuff? It's because they know they don't have anything called unconditional love. They can't find it. They don't have it. They, they try to imitate it, and they try to feel good about themselves. You pay psychiatrists $600 an hour or whatever it is today to lie to you and make you feel good about things that ought to send you screaming from your reflection in the mirror. 
But I can come before God's mirror and be totally honest with everything about me that is horrible. And He still says, if you'll understand your poorness in spirit, I will welcome you into my kingdom. How could you be more blessed than that, my friend? Hello? Are, are we together? You see, this is how Jesus starts his sermon. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you understand what a filthy, rotten, wicked, abominable sinner you are in the sight of God and confess your sins to Him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you enter into His kingdom. And what is a kingdom? That's the area that the king controls. Amen? The king has a right and a responsibility to protect his kingdom. In fact, if he cannot do it, it's not his kingdom. Now, what did Jesus say? He says, no man plucketh them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. See, Jesus keeps us. He secures us. He protects us. He has promised us. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. This is the Sermon on the Plain. As Jesus is re-preaching much of what was in the Sermon on the Mount at a different time, He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, we don't need to be afraid of God. Because He wants to give us the kingdom. Read 2 Peter chapter 1. It says that He wants to minister unto us abundantly an entrance into His kingdom. I don't know about you, but those are exciting things. Even for Sunday night when it's time to... If we didn't get our naps and all those things... Uh, I'll tell you what. He hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus knocks the entire foundation out of everything the Jewish people understood as their religion in the opening sentence of his sermon. Do you get that? Everything their religion about. In fact, we have well-meaning but very misguided people who will come to the Bible today and say, well, see, in the Old Testament you got saved by works, in the New Testament you get saved by faith. Uh, I want to challenge you, you always got saved by grace through faith. Never anything else. But faith is obedience to the revealed words of God. In the Old Testament, if I were obeying the revealed words of God, I would take my sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem. 
New Testament? I just have to believe what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. My salvation is not of me. It's all of Jesus. And if that is not a blessed thought, then you need to get your definitions revised. Amen? You are not working for your salvation. Jesus provides it free. But only to those who are willing to understand who God is and who I am. Nothing. I'm destitute. I am poorer than the poorest. What did he tell the church at at, uh, Laodicea? He said, you're blind, you're naked, you're poor. He said, you come to me and I'll give you clothing. You come to me and I'll anoint your eyes with eye salve that you can see. You come to me and I'll give you riches that never will perish and are laid up in heaven. But God's not going to give you any of those things. Until you understand that you're a poor beggar with no right to anything at the foot of the cross. And it's God's power that transforms you into His child and gives you birth into His family and makes you a joint heir with Jesus Christ, His Son. You can't be more blessed than that. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight, we ask that you would, you would allow us to think and to reach beyond. And Lord, let us never forget to be thankful for all the things that you have blessed us with. But Lord, help us to understand our spiritual poverty, our spiritual inability, our spiritual deadness. And Lord, that we would come to you that we might have light. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and encourage us in the greatness of the love wherewith you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And we'll just take a moment. If you need to slip out of your seat, you may do so. If you want to just pray in your seat. And then we'll get into our prayer time tonight.